Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and if I may, I want to thank you that our tears don't repulse you or make you turn away. They don't offend you. They're not the type of thing that it's off-putting to you. I thank you, Lord, that you are drawn because you said that you won't overlook a broken heart in Psalm 51. And I praise you and thank you for that. And Lord, I know that there are broken hearts here today. I know that there are broken hearts even as we think about people that are watching online. Things that we don't understand, things that don't make sense, things we didn't expect, things that we did not anticipate, things we didn't plan for. And yet, when we read in the Bible that the steps of the righteous are ordered of God, sometimes it even bewilders us even more. We don't understand what you are doing or why you're doing it. But I thank you for what uh, Charles Spurgeon said. When we cannot trace the hand of God, we can always trust the heart of God. And so we come before you today saying we may not understand, but we trust you. And we know that you do all things well. And we ask you to help us to believe that even in the worst of circumstances. You are in control. You are with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. We always have your power and your resources with us. And uh, you guide us through these valleys. You guide us through these trials. And so, Father, we come before you with the burdens of our life. We pray for marriages to be restored. We pray for family relationships to be restored between parents and children. We pray, Father, for all of the things we go through in life, the betrayals that we face, the lies that are told, all of the corruption that we see all around us, the injustice. And, oh, Lord, it makes us long for the day when Jesus returns to rule and reign on this earth and set everything straight. So we say with the apostle, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But even as I say that, I'm thinking about the people that may even be in this room who are not ready for the return of the Lord. They're not ready for death or anything like that at all because they've never repented of their sins. They've never trusted Jesus as the full payment for their sins. They may have gone through some rituals. They may have been dunked. They may have gone through the initiation of a club or something like that that makes them feel better about themselves. And what they really need is the sufficient sacrifice of the eternal Savior. And I pray today that you would cause them to understand the glorious and wonderful good news that Jesus Christ came to the earth to save sinners. And he did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners like us. And he saves wicked, broken people like us. And I thank you so much for that. Would you make that clear to somebody today? And I want to pray for believers. And I want uh, to ask you, Lord, to bear witness with their spirit that they are children of God. To let them know you don't abandon them, you don't forsake them, you don't cast them out. In fact, you said, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. No circumstances present in the universe that you would ever cast away or abandon your children. Thank you for that. Cleanse us, teach us, and bless us and feed us on your word. Thank you for fellowship this morning. And thank you, Lord, for your wonderful love for people like us. And we pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles now. We are in the second chapter of John. And Jesus is going to go to a wedding. Weddings in those days were uh, just a little bit different than the weddings that we celebrate now. And uh, as we get ready to read our verses in this story out of John chapter 2, there are some things that uh, I want to say and point out to you. They're on the first slide here. And uh, we, we need to think about this takes place in a place called we call it Cana. I doubt they pronounced it that way, but that's the way it looks. And uh, it's a city in Galilee. It was kind of a rival city to Nazareth. And nobody really thought much about Nazareth. Nobody thought much about Cana, kind of like thinking about Godibo or something like that. It just wasn't really on people's minds. They didn't think much about it. They didn't expect much out of these kind of towns. But uh, we will say this. If Nazareth was kind of the bottom of the heap of towns in Galilee, which was the bottom of the heap, Cana was just a little bit better. A little, little bit better. They looked down on the people from Nazareth. Very close to Nazareth, by the way. 
And uh, so when we read about this story and the people that were there, Jesus and uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, uh, the disciples of Jesus, uh, let's just go out on a limb and say they were in such proximity, they probably knew each other, may have even been related to uh, some degree. And uh, so when we uh, think about this wedding, who was getting married? We don't know. No, nothing is said about it. We didn't get the invitation. I didn't, did you? And uh, so we don't know who's getting married. But what do we surmise on all of this? Um, probably, as we read the story, we get the idea it was a relative, maybe of the Lord Jesus, or a close family friend, or something like that. Say, so why do we know that? Because we find Mary in this story seems to kind of be in a prominent and even somewhat authoritative position. She may have been the wedding director. She may have been a, 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 an aunt of the bridegroom or something like that. But uh, that's, that's what's happening. And she seems to be concerned about what's going on. When they run out of wine, it's Mary who takes the need to Jesus. And when um, Jesus kind of pushes her back just a little bit, uh, she's the one that tells the servants, whatever he says, do it. So uh, if she must have had some type of position there. And that would only be the case if it were a relative, which it may well have been, or a uh, close family friend or something like that. Um, some people say that she was a sister to the uh, uh, bridegroom's mother. And uh, some even have speculated that this wedding might have been the wedding of the writer of this uh, uh, book that we're reading, this gospel, that it might have been the uh, Apostle John who was getting ready here. But of course, we don't know any of that for sure. That's just speculation based on the fact that Mary apparently had a sister named Salome, and that was the name of the Apostle John's mother. And so maybe they were sisters, maybe Jesus and the Apostle John were related. But that's a bunch of maybes. We won't uh, spend much time uh, on this. Now, weddings, one of the things that made them so different, I guess we could say, is because people actually took their vows seriously then, maybe, and even uh, wanted to get married. And it was just something that they did. It was their custom. But they didn't just get together and have a wedding rehearsal and a a dinner that's provided by the groom's family and then a ceremony the next day and then go off on a honeymoon. Uh, you have to remember these are people that are occupied by Rome. These are people that are in a very poor region. There's a lot of poverty. And uh, for them, a 40-hour work week would be laughable. They work many more hours than 40 hours. They didn't have unions. They didn't have holidays much. Uh, they didn't have uh, any of the rights that we have. They didn't have a break every so many hours or anything like that. These people worked, and it, it was capital W-O-R-K. And um, it was the kind of thing where they didn't have much margin in their lives. For example, if they didn't go to work, that might mean that the family just didn't eat for a day or two, or maybe even longer than that. And uh, they had high taxes in those days. They had the... Uh, typical and traditional taxes that the law required for the temple and for poor people and things like that. But they also had Roman taxes. Caesar demanded the taxes. Remember Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and under God, unto God what is God's. It's just a tough, tough time. So here comes a wedding and everybody got excited about a wedding. All of the family, all of the friends and people in the city got excited for a wedding. Now, why would they do that? Well, let's uh, be fair. They were probably all related to some degree distantly, very distantly in some cases. Uh, these are people who live in a region where their land had been assigned to them by Joshua back when they came into the promised land. And uh, they were there by tribes. And every tribe, even though the relationship would have been, I mean, very, very distant and small, but yet it was all there. The tribe of Judah were all related to some way to Jacob's son, Judah, and that type of thing. And uh, so all of these are very, very, very uh, tight. And uh, if they weren't related, they were at least friends. They knew each other. I remember when we lived in Tuttle, we could go to the ball fields to watch kids play. And uh, we just turned our kids loose while we were there. Somebody said, aren't you afraid of that? No, not really. 
Uh, I know things could happen, but everybody knows our kids. And if anybody that wasn't supposed to tried to take one of our kids, he would have to deal with a whole lot of rednecks who had weapons. And uh, we felt relatively safe on that. If you grew up in a small town, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, that's the way this whole region would have been. They probably knew each other. They probably had something that tied them together. And so when a wedding took place, they didn't go, oh, great, a wedding. They went, yay, a wedding. You know why? Because they could take a week off. And that was something that was pretty rare for them. And when they took that week off, they could go to somebody else's house. They usually would have these celebrations in a house. And uh, it worked kind of like this. If the uh, people being married, if the bride was a, a, a virgin, uh, the Jewish law at that time demanded that their weddings be on a Wednesday. And uh, they would come together. They would have the ceremony. And then the uh, couple, the bridal couple, would go to the places that was prepared for them. It was customary in those days. Families generally lived together. And they would make a place in the father's house for the new family, maybe a lean-to or something like that. One day he would inherit all of the things that the father had, but now he's just kind of, you know, maybe they put a trailer in the backyard or something like that. And uh, they would go ahead and consummate the marriage, and everything began, the family began at that moment. But while the bride and groom are not present, the rest of the family and the guests are having what is called the marriage feast. And that would last for about seven days. So you can imagine, it took a lot of planning, a lot of preparation, a lot of money. And for people that are poor like this, uh, they had to work on this for a long time. And that's why you didn't have uh, weddings that were uh, extremely quick. The, uh, you would take about a year. A lot of times after the engagement or the betrothal period, if you think about the Christmas story with Mary and Joseph, there would be about a year, maybe a year and a half of getting ready for the actual wedding. And the bridegroom would go back to his father's house and uh, he would build on the uh, add-on to the house. And the parents, especially the bridegroom's parents, would save up the money and get ready for this great big feast and this time when all the family is going to come together. And so uh, you can see why when, uh, as we'll read in the story in just a moment, they run out of wine in this situation. This is an embarrassing situation. In fact, uh, one commentator I read said that if you were to run out of wine or food during this week-long ce celebration, after the wedding, you could be sued by the bride's parents because of that. So, I mean, there's just a lot of things that are going on here, not to mention just the shame of the whole situation because everybody looked forward to it and they wanted to be involved in the food and the celebration and the family being all together. This is just amazing. Now, this also gives us a picture of Jesus. What do you think of when you think of Jesus? Somber, stern, I don't know, disappointed, angry. Well, there were times he was like us. He felt all of those kind of emotions. But here we see a different side of him. This was a time of intense and joyful celebration. Have you ever thought and pictured the Lord Jesus while he was on earth celebrating anything? Having a good time, talking to people, laughing, all of those. That's what we find a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ here at this particular wedding, a different side. And it reminds us, when we are taken to heaven one day, there's going to be what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're going to feast in heaven together as we, the bride of Christ, are brought together to be with our bridegroom and then later to be presented before all of the inhabitants of, uh, of the earth. And so uh, we're going to celebrate. I wonder what that's going to be like to celebrate with Jesus at such a wonderful and amazing occasion that uh, starts off our eternity in this. It also tells us that we find Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet he's at home with ordinary people, in an ordinary home, on an ordinary situation and circumstance, and yet he is celebrating there. And then he is also concerned with the embarrassment and with the shame of people. You know, our word today is just, yeah, you just need to get over that. 
I'm glad Jesus never says that. Jesus says, I can minister to that. I can help you with that. I'll carry you through that. I will heal that. I'll bless you in all of that. And he is the one that we turn to. And this is a little different than I think most people would uh, think about Jesus if they were to picture him and his life on earth. It's kind of a wedding, a little bit like ours, kind of an interesting mixture of uh, celebration and a religious sacred ceremony. This is very, very sacred. This is something that had to do with a covenant much more than what we understand. A covenant that people are making between themselves and between uh, and with God and with their families, of course. And um, so uh, th this is no different here. This is where they are. And then when we think about the wine... We uh, wonder, well, what were they doing? Just getting drunk? And was Jesus getting drunk? And was he uh, helping them with their drunkenness and all of that? But one of the things that we don't really understand about wine, we have the same word, but the substance is a little bit different. And I've heard preachers in my past try to go all over the place and try to play all kinds of games to say none of this was fermented. But I really doubt that was true because even in the book of 1 Corinthians Paul had to get on to the church there because they were getting drunk when they were having the Lord's Supper, right? And so we think about that. Fermentation would have been almost impossible to avoid in this situation. Even their new wine that's just basically grape juice uh, in, the, in the heat and in the situation they were in with lack of refrigeration or any of that would have been almost impossible to keep it from fermenting to some degree. But here's what you probably don't know. They would take that wine because drunkenness was such an abhorrent thing to the Jews that they would take the wine and they would cut it down with water so that it may be only like a tenth of its uh, normal strength. And they would use that for several different reasons. First of all, this is a place where water is sometimes difficult to come through. Israel today is 60% desert. They have to collect water today. And in the days of Jesus, there were certain places where they would collect water during the rainy season that had to last them the entire year. Now, when you have no filtration, when you have no water treatment facilities, when all you have is a cistern that water runs into and it sets, and you have to use it for everything for a year, what do you suppose that water was like? When you have big aqueducts, and uh, up on these big columns, there's a trough, and water comes down from the mountains. No, nothing wrong with the water when it's coming down from the mountains, but the top is open. Okay, how many bugs do you think fell into that water? How many birds do you suppose got in that water trough as it was being brought down? How do you suppose the uh, heat that it was under, how do you suppose it affected the water? So... I'll just make a guess. Nobody, when the water started coming to the aqueduct, nobody went in there and said, oh, yay, like a water fountain or something like that. It was probably nasty. Gives us a little insight into when Jesus talked in Revelation about the church of Laodicea. And he says, speaking in terms of water, you're neither hot, because you can always use hot water and you can always boil dirty water and make it a little bit better. And you're not cold, cold, cool, and refreshing. There were springs in that area where you could go and get water. Right? Out. You ever tasted any water like that? It's wonderful. And uh, then there were some places that had like hot springs where if somebody were wounded in battle or sick or something like that, they could get in the water and the heat of the water, the geothermic pools would uh, help them and they were healing. Or you had the water out of the aqueduct that had come for mile after mile after mile and it was hot and uh, lukewarm. It was dirty. It smelled. It didn't taste good. And Jesus is saying to the church, because you're neither cool and refreshing like the water from the springs, you're neither healing and helpful like the water that would be heated from the uh, geothermic pools, but you're lukewarm. I'm going to do what everybody did in Laodicea with the water from the aqueduct. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And that's his picture of the church. Well, that fits into what we're talking about here today, not so much as it relates to the symbols of the churches, but that's the way water was in those days. 
So you know what they would do? They would carry many times a pouch of wine that had been boiled down and concentrated where it's almost a little bit like jelly but it still has the fermentation in it. And when they would get water out of an aqueduct or out of a creek or something like that, they would take some of that out of the pouch and put it in there and stir it up. And it did two things. Number one, it helped to purify the water. And number two, it just made it taste better. More like Kool-Aid or something like that. And so that's the way they would use wine. The idea of them just laying around and partying and being drunk and blitzed out of their mind and all of that kind of stuff. It just didn't exist in Israeli society to the degree that we might think. And in fact, whenever we might say, well, I'm going to have wine, they had it in the Bible. Your wine is probably about ten times as strong as anything they would drink. So it's kind of apples and oranges. It's not really the same thing. And so uh, they would have a way where they could take this wine, cut it down to the point to where it would quench their thirst, make the water purer, and make it taste better, and yet at the same time not to get inebriated to the point that it would uh, cause all kinds of trouble like this. This is the way that they did wine. John MacArthur says, The wine served was subject to fermentation in the ancient world, However, to quench thirst without inducing drunkenness, wine was diluted with water to between one-third and one-tenth of its strength. And due to the climate and the circumstances, even new wine would ferment quickly and have an inebriating effect if it were not mixed with water. So this was not the kind of thing maybe that we think of. We've always, when we study the scripture, have to go back into their time and understand it in their way and in their uh, setting and in their circumstances. So this is what's happened. And so uh, we uh, think about this also with this being a miracle. And certainly it was a miracle. You couldn't do it. I can't do it. Nobody else could do it. But Christ certainly could do it. It wasn't any problem for him. And um, where it turned into wine, it seems that when they filled the stone pots, when the servants did, then Jesus immediately said, draw some out and take it to the uh, master of ceremonies, the one who is a superintendent, probably a relative of the bridegroom, since the bridegroom's family was in charge of all of this. And somehow, between dipping it out and taking it in there, or as they dipped it out, I don't know, that water turned into wine. And that's when the governor of the feast tasted it and said, Wow, you've done the exact opposite. Most people put the good stuff out first, and then later on they put out the bad stuff, but you've saved the best for last. Kind of a picture, I think, of life. I don't in any way believe or ascribe to the idea that here on earth you can have your best life now, as Joel Osteen says, but rather like in this picture, in this story, we have what we have now and it only gets better whenever we die and we go to be with the Lord. Our best life is yet to come whenever we are with the Lord. That's just the way that he works. But it is called a sign and uh, this is something that points to something significant. And there are several signs in the book of John that John will call attention to. This again was a sign. A sign of the power of Christ. A sign of the messiahship of Christ. A sign of the authority of Christ. A sign that this indeed is God in human flesh walking among us. He may not look much different than we do. He may seem ordinary, but he is not ordinary in any way, shape, or form. And this is the first one. So turn in your Bibles to John 2, and let's just read about it, okay? You're probably familiar with the story, but if not, this is the first miracle of Jesus. This is the first thing that he did to reveal himself. Interesting, isn't it? So, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, that's the third day after meeting Nathaniel and those people we talked about last week, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and uh, the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples, I think he had five at that time, were invited to the wedding. And when they had run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, 
they have run out of wine. And Jesus said to her, now this sounds rude when we read it, but in their day this was not. It'd be more like saying uh, ma'am or lady. He goes, woman, uh, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so uh, in verse 5 it says his mother, she wasn't bothered by that at all apparently. She said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's a pretty good motto for life, by the way. Whatever he says, do it. And it goes on in verse 6 to say, Now there were set there, this is important, six water pots of stone. Well, maybe that's not the most important part. Just calling attention to they were there, they would be necessary. But notice how John tells us, According to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing, look at this, 20 or 30 gallons apiece. A lot of water. A lot of things held in that pot. Going to be a lot of wine made, right? And it says in verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. That tells us nothing was added to it. Nothing else was going on to the brim. Okay? Verse 8, And he said to them, Draw some out now, because you couldn't carry those big pots, especially full of water, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, now in parenthesis, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, right? The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then uh, the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. You saved the best for last. And verse uh, 11 says, This beginning of signs, this beginning of signs, okay, that's important, Jesus did, and... Um, in Cana of Galilee, just an ordinary place in an ordinary town and uh, not the most well thought of place, by the way, and manifested his glory. That's the sign. He manifested his glory by doing this. And his disciples believed in him, meaning even more, they were more convinced. And it says, after this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers, who, by the way, didn't believe in him, and his disciples, and uh, they did not stay there uh, many days, just, just a few days, and then they uh, moved on, probably going back to Nazareth, and Jesus has other things that he is going to do. So, I mean, you have to admit, it's kind of an interesting story. If you were sending the Messiah, would you go, Ah, let's go to a wedding in an obscure, insignificant town with a bunch of nobodies and, uh, you know, let them run out of wine and then we'll uh, fix the situation. That, to me, is kind of interesting that this would be in the plan of God. This is no accident. This is not something that uh, Jesus just kind of got caught off guard and he goes, well, I guess. I don't know what else to do. Because uh, some people read this story and it's almost like, that the, uh, the wedding people were embarrassed because they ran out of wine. And now Jesus, I mean, his mom asked him to do it. And, you know, you got to do what your mom wants you to do. And you don't want to be that guy and that kind of a kid. And you don't want to make a spectacle out of things. And you don't want to embarrass your mom in front of the, the servants. And you don't want to be embarrassed yourself that you are that kind of a person. So you just do it. And when you hear this story, most of the time, that it kind of comes across a little bit like that. There have been songs written about this. I wish I could do my Johnny Cash uh, voice. Uh, you know, he turned the water into wine. So, I mean, what, what's the point of all of it? Well, there is indeed a point. Now, the first thing I want you to think about in this is where did Mary go when they ran out of wine? Well, she didn't run to a liquor store and she didn't run to a grocery store or any place like that. The first place she goes is to Jesus. Is there anything that we can learn from that? 
Well, think about this. The fact that Jesus was there means that his power was there because Jesus never goes anywhere without his power. Sometimes we act as though the Lord's with us and he lives in us, but I've got this problem. Oh, Lord, I need your power. You've already got it. It's already there because everywhere the Lord is, he takes his power with him. And you have the ability and the resources that come from God himself and the life of God that is in you through the new birth, through salvation, so that anytime and anything that you face, any problem that comes your way, you can't handle it, but he can. And his power is always there. He never has to run to the rescue because he's walking with you right into the midst of it. He is there and he knows exactly what he is going to do. So the first thing we learn is that the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus are always inseparable. He never forgets it. It's never something that he lays aside. It's never something that he just leaves in heaven and comes down with you and said, oh, let me run back up and get some more of my power. Always having infinite power. Now, when you uh, think about this, this kind of thing, it's not a dramatic kind of thing like maybe healing a leper or making somebody's limb appear or anything like that. It's not like a resurrection or anything. Uh, somehow, we go from pots full of water to having pots full of wine for this wedding and for this celebration. And uh, we don't know exactly how it happened. We don't know when it happened. But we do know this. And this would be what we think of in uh, our second point here. That Jesus' power and presence is, uh, let's call it transformational or transformative. In other words, let's think about this. You never come into contact with Jesus and remain the same. That's impossible. There are some people that say, oh, I'm saved, but nothing's ever changed in their life. They still talk the same. They still act the same. They're still motivated the same way. They're still doing the same things. They have no conviction. They have no, they're not bothered by their sin or anything at all. And they have to go, oh, yes, I met Jesus. Oh, yes, I'm saved. Okay? Now, if you were out here on 104th Street and you were crossing the street and all of a sudden a, a big 18-wheeler comes through there and just slams you, and uh, we're all watching it, and we're going, oh, oh, no, that's terrible. What happened? And we go over, and we gather around you, and say, are, are, are you still alive? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm fine. We would go, what? What do you mean you're fine? And if you came walking into the church, and you come in here, and your clothes are all together, and they're clean and well-pressed, and you're well-groomed, and your hair is combed, and everything's great, and you come in here and start telling us you were run over by an 18-wheeler, we would look and say, there's no evidence of it, because you cannot come into contact with an 18-wheeler and remain the same. Why would we think that we can be saved, come into contact with Christ, He come to live within us and be unchanged? I want you to think about that. And yet there are so many people you run into every day that Jesus is just like putting on a little necklace. Jesus is like getting a tattoo. Jesus is like getting a new jacket or something like that. Nothing much has really changed. Oh, did you see my new jacket? Oh, did you see my new tattoo? Oh, did you see... I mean, what are we thinking of here? He's not just an add-on to our life. In fact, the Bible says that Christ actually is our life. So the moment you confess Christ as Lord and surrender to Him, your old self was executed and you received a new life. And the new life is not just a better life or an improved life. It's a brand new life and it's eternal life. You receive the life of God at the moment of your salvation. You will never die. You'll change addresses one day and go from here to heaven, but you will never die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You go from a state of hostility toward God. You may not feel like you're hostile toward God, but that's the way he sees it. You're living your own life under your own strength and power, under your own authority. You don't really care what God says unless it agrees with you. You're not really all that 
that impressed with him. You don't really have any motivation to change because, you know, you know, God loves me the way I am, big deal. And we just move on like the death of Christ and the salvation of God. Just another thing that happens. You know, I woke up this morning and I didn't get all excited because I was breathing. I probably would have gotten excited if I couldn't breathe. But, I, you know, I just woke up. And, oh, it's early. It's morning. It's still dark. Got to get up. Got to get ready for church. And yawned a little bit and stretched. And then uh, got up and went about the daily business on everything. Getting ready and all of that. And uh, didn't really think that much about it. Didn't really go, praise God I can breathe. You didn't either. I didn't get out of bed and stand up and go, glory to God, we've got gravity. I'm not hitting the ceiling and flying all over the place. We don't do that, do we? If you took a shower this morning, I really doubt that when you turned it on and hot, clean water came out of it, that you went, oh, glory to God, hallelujah, I'm just going to take some time to give God praise and glory for what he has done. You didn't even think about it. Now, you think about them when they're not there, and you think about them when they don't work but not just because that they're there, okay? Now, when we think about this situation, water turning to wine, I wonder how many people go, oh, well, what, I got more wine. You know, maybe they'd gone up to get something before and there wasn't enough or they didn't have any, but now they have it. And they go, oh, well, they got it. And they probably, for most of them, never really stopped to think where it came from or how it got there. It's just, it's just there. This is what they're supposed to be. Oh, good, the bridegroom's family is not going to get sued because they ruined a girl's wedding. And uh, they're not going to be embarrassed. They had plenty. And hey, oh, it's a little bit better than it was before. Cool, have some more. And go about with the party until it's, it's all over. I don't know that this caused a huge stir because uh, it mentions in there that the the guy who's the master of the feast didn't know where it came from. He liked it, but he didn't know where it came from. But, in parentheses, well, the servants knew. And maybe it didn't go too much further than that. Maybe it didn't cause a big splash. Maybe it didn't do anything like that. And uh, maybe it's kind of like when you got saved. Maybe there were a lot of people in your family who just didn't care. Uh, he got religion. Oh, she's going to church more now. Well, they're kind of fanatical, but oh, well, if it works for them, that's good. But they don't get too excited about it. They don't really care all that much about what you think or what you say or anything like that. But yet your life was absolutely transformed. You were taken out of death into life, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have a new nature. You have a new relationship with God. You've got a place prepared for you in heaven. Everything has changed. As Paul said, behold, all things become new. Nobody can really see it. You still look the same. But you uh, are different, and you're motivated differently, and you start to change. And eventually, people say, you know, you don't use the four-letter words you used to use anymore. How come? Opportunity to tell them about Jesus. There may be some other times when somebody said, I notice you don't laugh at the same jokes that you used to laugh at, that we all laugh at. What's the matter with you? Opportunity to talk about Jesus. The changed life gives us a lot of opportunities to witness and it's the enemy's job to make sure nobody notices and that we stumble up enough to where they go well it looked like Greg had changed but eh, I guess not and to go on like that and we don't really think about it all that much Jesus power and presence is transformational listen you cannot meet him you cannot know him and be indifferent you cannot do that and just remain the way that you are. You will change one way or another. You will either be more hardened in your sin and in your hatred toward God. Or you will love him and be more conformed to his image. But you just don't remain in neutral in anything like this. No more than this water could remain water. It had to become wine because Jesus, the boss and the creator of all, commanded it. And he did it. He transformed it. Thirdly, I want you to notice that the presence and power of Jesus, it removes shame. You see, when we look at the root of this story, there, were a group of, there was a group of people here who were going to be horribly embarrassed. And Jesus, when he says, my hour is not yet come, I mean, basically he is saying, I've got bigger fish to fry. I've got a bigger purpose that I came for. And yet he did it. I wonder why he did it. And I think it's because 
Jesus is concerned about even the embarrassment and the shame that would come to little ordinary people in a little town in an obscure part of Israel way back then. I mean, 2,000 years later, who cares? Who feels the shame of this story? Who feels the embarrassment of these poor people? Well, not most of us. It's just, oh, oh, okay, okay, we move on. But not Jesus. He actually got involved and he removed their shame. And it reminds me that when Jesus transforms our life, when we trust him, he takes away all of the blame. He takes away all of the shame. He takes away all the embarrassment. You don't have to, when you pray, come before God and, uh, oh God, I know I'm not worthy to come before you. Well, he knows that. And you know that, but that's been taken care of. That's why we come in the name of Jesus, because Jesus is worthy. He's always worthy, and he's the one that tells us we can come with boldness or confidence into the very presence of God. That is something that is amazing to think that he would want to hear us, to think that his ear would be inclined to us, to think that he would care about our little bitty piddly problems that are going on in our life. And yet he says... Casting all your care, all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And if it's important to you, it's important to him. If it's a burden to you, he wants to hear about it. He wants to help you with it. He wants to do something about it. And this is something that amazes me that instead of the presence of Jesus causing shame and bringing shame and bringing embarrassment, it actually liberates us from it. So if you've been afraid to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, thinking, I'm just too bad, I don't know, remember, Jesus is the one who alleviates that shame and takes away the shame of your life. That's why we need Him, and that's why we love Him so much. Number four, the presence and the power of Jesus brings joy and fellowship. Joy and fellowship. Uh, Here you are, it's your daughter that's getting married, You're providing the feast. You're doing the best that you can. And there's an expectation it's going to go for seven days. And you can only go two. How would you feel? You feel shamed in the eyes of your uh, daughter's in-laws? Shame in the community and all of that? You'd feel inadequate. You'd be going, why couldn't I have had a better job? Why couldn't couldn't we live under better circumstances? Boy, the Pharisees down the road didn't have this problem. But look at me. I've done everything that I possibly could, and we've run out of wine, let's say on day two. Don't know which day it was, but let's say it was day two. Okay, I want you to think about what happens to the party. For those of you who are old like me, did you ever hear Don Meredith at a football game with Howard Cosell? What did he do? Turn out the lights, the party's over. Any of you remember that? Those are good memories for me. Well, that was what would happen here. It's over. Family, go home. There's no more wine. There's nothing else we can do. We've run out. It's over. Closing down. I always feel bad when you go to a restaurant. And uh, I think we were at Cracker Barrel one time. And there was something that I wanted there that they are well known for. And the waitress had to go, I'm sorry, sir. We don't have any more of that. That's embarrassing. To a manager, that's embarrassing. To a restaurant, that would be embarrassing to these people. But when they find out, oh no, look, we've got this whole supply. Uh, These stone pots that they would use for ritual purification held 20, 30 gallons apiece. Six of those? How many gallons is that? So all of a sudden they go from zero to hero. All of a sudden, hey, we can keep on. We can go on. We can make it to the end of the week. There's plenty of this now. And so the joy is restored. You know what you will find out if you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior? That he doesn't just take everything for you and say you are sentenced now hereby to a boring, dull life without parole, no Uh, No chance of parole, no release or anything. Just endure and be bored until the end. No, you find out that Jesus is a joy-giving God. He gives us his joy. And he says he doesn't give joy like the world gives because it runs out just like this wine did. But he gives you an everlasting supply of joy. And this joy will flow out of your heart like an artesian well out of the ground, just gushing with joy and all of that. Is that what you're experiencing? 
That's what Jesus promised. You need to claim that promise of his joy. And these people are able to go back to resuming their conversation, playing their games, singing their songs, whatever they would do during this time. And they went on and they were able to go all the way through the week because the thief, the devil, comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And this is all a symbol of the abundant life that Jesus causes it to go on and on and on when it looked like it was all going to stop. But there's another thing too that we'll wrap up with this. Why did John point out the stone pots? You say, oh, that's easy because that's what the wine was going to be in. Yeah, but he added something to it. He said that were for the Jewish rituals of purification. Huh. Who cares about that? Why would that be included in this story and all of them? Well, think about it. The Jews were very clean people, and they had their rituals. Certain ways they had to wash their hands. Certain ways they would, you ready for this? Wash their feet. And those six pots were where they got the water. Now, I want to ask you a question. If there were, say, oh, 50 to 100 guests, they lived in a dusty, dirty time. They worked manual labor, mainly. They walked in sandals that uh, gave them covering for the bottom of their feet, but not for the tops or anything like that. And they've been walking where animals have been. They've been walking in mud. They've been walking in dirt. They've been walking in all kinds of filth. And now they have to wash their feet or have the servants do it before they go into the house for the wedding feast. Can you even begin to imagine what that water looked like in those pots. Think about it. You wouldn't want to drink out of those pots. You wouldn't want anything to do with those pots because those pots, they could wash some dirt off of your feet, but it was only temporary, and they could not transform you into a perfectly clean, continually clean person. That just didn't happen. And those pots represent what the Jewish religion had become. Rituals for cleansing that were temporary, that could not really get to the heart of the matter, that could not transform the soul, and certainly didn't bring any joy. There were laws that could point out your guilt but give you no relief. No wonder they were burdened down. No wonder they were filled with anxiety because every time they went to the synagogue and every time they went to the temple, all of the things that they did reminded them of how desperately wicked they were, how far from God they were, but there was no path. There was no reunion to God. There was no bridge over the gap. And all of a sudden, this guy comes that they thought was just a village carpenter from a place called Nazareth, and he happens to be at a wedding. And when the wine runs out, he says, fill up those dirty, nasty pots. And when they did, they had wine. And it was not just wine that was adequate. It was the best wine. And it brought joy. And it brought fellowship to all of them. And nobody else could do that except the God that could create the universe with just a word then turning water to wine was no big deal to him and didn't even use up a bit of his power. You know what Jesus is saying? You're not going to find any joy in religion. You're not going to find any joy in moralizing yourself. You're not going to find anything that will really cleanse and satisfy your soul in just going to church or going through rituals or helping the poor. All good things but they can't do anything for you. But Jesus can. His presence and his power, as we said earlier, is transformative. You meet him, you will never be the same. And he takes your life and takes all of the dirt and the filth and the sludge and takes all of the gunk that is a part of that and he makes you into a new creature and now all of a sudden you're overflowing with joy and with peace and with the fruit of the Spirit. And your life has been changed because you realized you can't pay for your sins. No religion can pay for your sins. Nobody can cleanse you but Jesus Christ and His shed blood on the cross of Calvary. And you need to trust in Him and quit trusting in yourself or any other thing that you do and trust in Him alone as a full payment for your sin 
and that he rose from the dead on the third day showing that nothing can corrupt him and nothing can keep him down and that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns and folks he is coming back one day and oh what a day that's going to be for those who know him. Think about that. And think about what can flow through your life because the one that turned water into wine can turn your mess into something beautiful. Something beautiful. You remember that? Something good. All my confusion. He understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. And he made something beautiful of my life. Isn't that the truth? How many of you can say amen to that? Where would you be if Jesus hadn't loved you? Where would you be if Jesus hadn't cared? Where would you be if he hadn't sacrificed his life? And that's why we worship. That's why we sing. That's why we look at these stories. Because this is just a symbol, an illustration, a sign, if you please, of who he was, of his power, and what he does, even to the point of taking away the shame of the people who don't even know really what is happening or how anything is going to happen. And yet Jesus cared, Jesus loved, and Jesus was powerful enough to do something about it. And that is true even today for you. He loves you, he cares for you, and he is powerful enough to do something about it and to make you into a child of God. Will you trust him? Will you trust Him today? And if you have trusted Him as Savior and Lord, will you yield to that power? And will you let that power flow through you and use that power for everything you go through in life? And think about this. All this and then an eternity in heaven. All of this and an eternity in heaven. What a great situation that we find ourselves in because we have a great a powerful, a loving, and a transforming God who paid for our sins through the blood of His own Son. Hallelujah, hallelujah for the love and the grace that we find in Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you today to say thank you for doing this miracle, working this miracle. You did it in a house we've never heard of, in a town, we're not even exactly sure where it is right now. And in a, a place and in a situation that really wouldn't matter in the whole scheme of things. Except that it does matter. We need your transforming power by your presence to change our lives. Take away our shame and make us into something we could never make ourselves to be. And that religion could never make us to be. We need the transforming power of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. May we trust in you today. And may those who are lost put their full trust in you. May those who are saved be reminded of what you've done for them. And on top of all this, we just simply say, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.